I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles up to the New Testament Gospel of Matthew as we're continuing in a sermon series this morning that we've entitled Untwisting Scripture. This morning we're going to be looking at a scripture that I think falls victim to the system of chapter and verse that we use to reference in our Bible. The chapter breaks that are in our Bible weren't actually introduced into the biblical literature until the 1200s, and the verses weren't introduced into the Bible until the 1500s. Before that, in the original writers would have written in just in, in blocks. It would have all been the, the literature. It would have all been the writing. But something that chapter and verse has done, the positive is it allows us to reference verses pretty easily. I can say Matthew chapter 7, we all know where to go. One of the things that we find that some scripture falls victim to this is when, when people will look at a chapter and a verse and can t- take that verse, read it on its own now out of context of the re- rest of scripture or of the scripture that it is in and around, that it is part of. And I think that that happens to this particular scripture. There are many in our culture especially believers who are young in their faith or, or maybe are shallow in their faith, who might look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, and, and look at it as a biblical, maybe a, a genie in a bottle. Or maybe they can look at these as, wow, that kind of sounds like a fortune cookie. And this morning we're going to untwist this scripture in Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to see that, that our culture introduces this and and we can see it leading towards the prosperity gospel the gospel that that talks health and wealth and it and it, and it tells you know talks of you know the the more you give the better you'll live or, or the more you pray the better your day that's a, the prosperity gospel idea that's not what Jesus is talking about but we can see in this scripture how if you take this out of context how people can actually see that and we're going to look at this Jesus is saying That life as a follower of Jesus, it's not a life of simply wishing for something and and knowing you're a believer in Jesus and, and then you're going to receive whatever it is that you're asking for. Jesus is saying that our connection with Jesus is meant to be a relationship. It's meant to be built on communication. It's meant to be a relationship that is going to grow deeper and deeper and deeper. What Jesus is doing in Matthew chapter 7, he's continuing what's referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. We've been in that in chapters uh, 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. We see the Sermon on the Mount and its instructions that Jesus is giving his disciples and teaching them about life following him. So let's take a look at this. We're in Matthew chapter 7. We're going to start in verse number 7 and see what scripture, what this scripture is that our culture seems to like to continue to twist. Matthew 7, 7 and 8 reads like this. It says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks it will be open. There is a selfishness in our culture that seems to think that a believer in Christ is automatically going to have access to all of these gifts that come with your faith in Christ. 
happiness, peace, and a world full of amazement. If you take these scriptures, these two verses that says, ask and seek and knock and, and, and it'll be given to you, it's easy to take that out of context. And it's easy to have an expectation of a Christian life that Christ isn't talking about. But for so many, our culture forgets that the very first word in this verse, this first verb, is the word ask. It leads us to point number one in your notes this morning. For those of you joining us for the first time, you'll find on the left-hand side of your bulletin, there's some fill-in-the-blanks. And those are going to be up here on the screen for you as well as we fill those in. Point number one in your notes this morning, prayers that are never prayed are never answered. Prayers that are never prayed are never answered. When God's people pursue something by asking, seeking, and knocking, he responds in faithfulness and generosity. We're not only supposed to pray, we're told to pray, we're commanded to pray, to seek, to ask, to knock. That means that we're looking for something, right? If we're asking, if we're seeking, there's this, an assum there's this assumption that there is a request that we are making. Does God know what you need? Sure he does. Sure God knows what you need. But does he still want you to ask for it? Yeah. He does. First, a couple of reasons. First of all, he, he wants you to understand what it is that you need. See, there's a difference, right, between our needs and our wants. He wants you to know what it is that you need. Second, he wants you to understand who can fill that need. A lot of times when we're going to God to fill a need, which we should be doing often... It's easy to realize, or we should be realizing, that we're going to God to fill a need because we can't fill it ourselves. We're going to God to fill a need. He should be the first one we're going to, to fill that. There's this emphasis in this verse that, that you need to have a relationship with the one that you are asking for something from. But to be fair, if you're going to ask something from your doctor, that you probably should have a, a relationship with your doctor. You should probably go and see your doctor. This morning we're going to untwist this, this scripture that some people ha have twisted up to give this impression that, that life with Christ is just going to be, it's you bring your requests. What do you want? And it happens when we don't look at the details of this verse, when we bring it up one verse at a time. Our world has looked at this seeing it as something that it was never meant to say, to, to say. And some people live by it, and it becomes almost this life verse that we see people regularly using as, you know what, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Christian, and so I, I get it. I, I, get whatever, I get whatever I want. How can, however, somebody who doesn't have a relationship with God Ask God for favor and expect a response. Would it be fair to say that we've known people in our lives who say, well, you know, I, uh, yeah, oh yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian. I believe what I want to believe, but I'm, I'm a Christian. I, I, I know God. I know God is like this. I don't believe God is like that. I, I believe he's like this. And they continue to, to ask. For that matter, I mean, why would an unbeliever ask God for anything? In order to ask God for anything, it would be fair to say that we need to have a belief in God. 
what Jesus is telling to his disciples, if we put this back in context and go to that moment when Jesus is on a hill speaking the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking to people who follow Jesus. All of these people who are listening to them, to him, are followers. He's not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to disciples. He's talking to followers. See, there's a lot of people in our world who have no understanding of who God is. They never speak to him. They never listen to him. But they come with a makeshift prayer in the most desperate times of their life. And, and, and they expect something from God. They give God their least, but they expect from him his best. It happens when people decide to ask for just deciding to ask for things with no relationship, health, wealth, privilege, blessings beyond comprehension. You know, you're just asking for the, the world, mysteries solved, unfathomable favor, and, and, and our relationship with God is simply in that ask stage. And, and they base their faith, there's some that you know, and maybe some here today that are going to base their faith on the fulfillment of the goals that they have set for God to accomplish in their life. See, if we're setting goals and telling God what we want Him to accomplish, I'll let you know right now, chances are you're going to be disappointed. We're going to be disappointed. If we're telling God, this is what I expect from you, what we're doing is limiting what God can do in our lives. God can do so much more than we can even imagine. I'm not going to sit here this morning or stand and say that God's never going to deliver that to you, but what I will say is He's not going to deliver anything if we are not praying and asking Him for it. He desperately wants this deep relationship with us. And when the only instances that we have in His presence are that moment when we are at our worst, but we are asking Him to provide His best, then we don't get this true representation of what a relationship with God is supposed to be like. Again, if all we're doing is going in to see our doctor to get our prescription refilled and we never sit down with them and talk to them, we're never going to learn what him and his expertise have to say about our situation, right? It takes that relationship. It takes that time. People are always asking for answers to their prayers. I mean, we, we, we pray with a hopeful response. And many people forget God can answer in, He can really answer in three different ways. God can give a yes. God can give a no. God might say not now. But I wonder why is it, why is it that we refer to prayer when God says no as an unanswered prayer? Wouldn't it be fair to say that no is an answer? And that is actually an answered prayer if God says no. Even before Jesus had this conversation with his disciples, God had a conversation with a man named Job in the Old Testament. God is challenging Job with, <coughs> excuse me, uh, Job was, was questioning God. He had questions about his situation. I want to see what, I want you to see what God says to Job. We're in Job chapter 28. It should be up here on the screen for you. God says this. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you know so much, who determined its dimensions? What supports its foundations? And who laid its cornerstone? 
as the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Have you ever commanded the morning to appear and cause the dawn to rise in the east? You know what God is saying? He's saying, don't you know who I am? Don't you know how powerful I am? Don't you know that, that what it is that's going on in your life right now that you're struggling with? I know about that. I know what's going on. What is it, a job? Maybe a marriage? Sister-in-law? Family member who is sick? I mean, that happens in our life. Maybe there's health concerns. Maybe you look ahead and, 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 and you're struggling to find hope, looking down your world, looking down your life, looking into the next year or so. And maybe some of us think, you know, I'm just not getting the answers from God that I want, and God doesn't care about me. Some might here might simply might not realize how much God cares about you and how much care there is in an answered prayer that says no. There's a lot of care in an answered prayer that says no or that says not right now. To get this point across, Jesus used a real-world illustration. Come back with me in Matthew chapter 7, where in verse number 9, he's still talking to his disciples, and he says this. He says, Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? He won't give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? It's a great illustration that Jesus uses. Here's the principle. It's point number two in your notes this morning. The gift giver is the one who determines the gift, and God's gifts are always good and according to his will. The gift giver is the one who determines the gift, and God's gift, gifts are always good and according to his will. We've talked about this before on Sunday mornings how the gift giver determines the gifts. I've mentioned that before. And Jesus is putting this in perspective to the disciples. For he's saying, if you as a parent feed your children when you know they need food, God's not going to trick you by giving you something that you don't need. He's not going to trick you. You're asking him for food. He's not going to trick you. Jesus is saying, you wouldn't give your kid a snake if he's asking for food. There's this, there's this assumption that you and I would take care of our kids. We'd take care of our children the best that we can within our, our human earthly abilities. In those days, bread and fish were staples of the Jewish diet. But rocks and snakes weren't. Not many parents, I'm going to go out on a limb and say none, would bring home rocks and snakes to feed their kids. It's not what they're doing. Jesus is making this argument from the lesser to the greater, saying that if you, sinful, mortal, would take care of your kids, how much more do you think God's going to take care of you? Somebody who has unconditional love for you. Somebody who has access to all of the resources on earth because he created all of the resources on earth. 
God is never going to give you a gift that is not good. The problem is, is that us, as sinful people, like to create our own definition of good. That's not a definition that's up to us to define. If God is good and we are not God, we can't create the definition of good. It'd probably be fair to say that at some point in your life, you have had a different opinion of what was good for you than God had. You've had a different idea. You have told God that this is what I want because this is good for me. That's when God's answer to your prayer is no. Because God's definition of good is unchanging. It's always been the same definition of good. God's definition of good does not care who our political leader is. It does not care what society says is okay and legal now. It does not care because his definition of good is fixed. It does not change. There's this idea in our culture that's, you know, what, what's good for you might not be good for me. It's, you can have your good and I can have my good. God's good does not change. See, God's never going to give you something that is not good by His standard. And although we might see the gift as something that is uncomfortable, maybe we see it as something that's unpleasant, it's distracting to our everyday life, maybe He's going to send you to another country to go out on mission. Disrupting to your life? Probably. Could be. Maybe you're going to find it obtrusive. Maybe you're going to find it gets in the way of your happiness. But if it is a gift from God, it is a good gift for your life. See, it's according to God's will, not our will. Our will is sinful. Our will is selfish. Oh, our will is selfish. God's will is pure. It's good. It's loving. It is perfect. There are, we are to always do God's will, but there are times when our will seems to be the more dominant pressure in our lives, seems to dominate our direction and our behavior more than God's will does. I've used this illustration before, too. You're at work, and one of your coworkers has a birthday party coming up, and being the amazing just office staff member that you are, you're going to go out and you're going to get a gift for your coworker and you're going to wrap it up and bring it and somebody has decorated her cubicle and it's all full of confetti and streamers and it's just going to be a great time. When she gets back from the meeting, everyone's going to go surprise and you've got a great little birthday party. But you've gone out and you've got a gift. You bought that gift. You've wrapped it. But let me ask, when it comes to buying that gift, under whose authority is that gift purchased? It's under yours, right? You're the one that went out and you got the gift. Your coworker might have suggestions 
Or there might be something in her life that you know that she likes, so you're going to get her a new troll doll for her desk because you know that she likes that, right? But it's your gift to get because you are the gift giver. You have the authority for the gift. Sometimes children fall into this category. We know our kids always have suggestions or requests for their birthday, but as parents... Sometimes we can take those suggestions and we can roll with them. Sometimes they're okay. They're, they're within tolerance. They're, they're approved for our children to have that. But it's sometimes we don't. Sometimes we say, you know what? As a parent, great idea. I have to override it because it's not good. As a parent, sometimes no is an appropriate answer. We have to say no to our kids at times quite often, right? But it'd be fair to say we're saying no to our children because they are asking for something that is not good for them. God says no to us sometimes because we're asking for things that is not good for us. We might be asking for things that are more in line with our will and not in line with, with God's will. We never give gifts to our children that are not in their best interest. When I was six, I asked for an M80. Yeah. Wondering if I got it or not? Didn't. Didn't happen. I've got to be careful with this one because um, I'm going to mention a, a gift that I got from my parents, and although they're not here today, they, they both listen to the podcast during the week, so I will get a phone call by Tuesday on this, I know. When, uh, when I graduated from high school, I was hoping for a gift that, from my parents that was going to celebrate this amazing feat of graduating high school, which I'll tell you, my parents deserved more of a gift than I did because it was an amazing feat that I graduated high school. So I, I was, I was expecting, and so I had this request. I requested what's called a Cobra 148. So it's a CB radio. So I, I had this idea, I wanted a CB radio that would go inside my car and I can talk to my friends. It's about a $200, top of the line at the time. I had this idea and, and, and I wanted this radio bad. In their mind, I was on my way to college and they thought it would be a good idea to get me one of the top of the line word processors. Now, this is before the days of laptops. These weren't even in the consideration, having your own laptop at the time. This is 1994. This is, that's not happening. This word processor was a very large piece of equipment. It was a heavy machine. It was about the size of a microwave that you would tote around. It had one color screen about this size, a little blinking green light that would go like this, right? had a, a, about 14 floppy disks that you would put into it, right? It, it was heavy. And I'm not going to lie, I was really disappointed. I don't know, I wrote a couple of papers with it, but my parents had a good gift in mind that was according to their will. See, what they saw that I wasn't looking at, they saw you're going to college, you're going to have to write some papers, you just graduated high school, this gift ties in with school, it ties in with school on this side, we're going to get you a gift that is going to be helpful to your future. I'll tell you, it wasn't much longer after that, I saved my birthday money and I bought my own radio, my CB radio, put it in my car, and I did use that, 
microwave-sized word processor to write a couple of papers. But see, they were the gift giver. They get to determine the gift. It was a more thoughtful gift than what I had requested. God our Father gives gifts that are according to His will, not ours. Paul writes this to the Romans, the church in Rome, in Romans 8.32. He says, Since He did not spare even His own Son, but gave Him up for all of us, won't He also give us everything else? He's not saying everything else that you want and you ask for and you request. God's not a genie. He's not giving you whatever you want. He's giving you good gifts according to His will. Why do we try and solve our problems on our own instead of bringing them to the Lord in prayer and trusting that He is going to return to us a gift that is in line with His will to get us through the situation? Maybe that gift is a calm heart. Maybe it's a peaceful day. Maybe it's an opportunity to open our eyes to see things the way that somebody else sees them. That's a different gift than anything that we would ever ask for. Those aren't selfish gifts. See, even if He has given you a gift that enables you to reach out to other people, He expects you to use that gift. Would it be fair to say if somebody gives you a gift, even in our day and age, one of two things is going to happen. You're really going to love it and you're going to use it or you're going to re-gift it. You're going to wrap it up and give it to somebody else. I hope that you're not re-gifting God's gifts. You're not wrapping them up and just giving the entire gift away. I'm hoping you're using them, however, to reach other people. See, if God gives you a gift to use, there's an expectation that you're going to use it. And that you're going to use that gift for His glory. How selfish would it be to use God's gifts for our own glory? That would be really selfish. It's for us to use God's gifts for His glory. Are you hoarding God's gifts? Do we ever hold on to them? They're not meant for that. Peter writes this in 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospi uh, hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks... They should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. If you have a gift from God, you use it to glorify God. God is a gift giver, and He wants you to be a gift giver. He wants you to see the way that He treats you and use that as an example on how you are to treat others. Watch this. Come back with me into Matthew chapter 7. We're in verse number 12. Jesus says this, In everything, therefore, treat people the same way that you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. Luke wrote this. Luke also recorded the Sermon on the Mount. 
And this is in Luke's writing. In Luke chapter 6, he writes it like this, and you have, you've recognized this. Luke says this in chapter 6, verse 31, Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That leads us to point number three in your notes this morning. Our relationships should be based on the life instructions that God has given his children. Our relationships should be based on the life instructions that God has given his children. Jesus said this, he says, what we call the golden rule, he says this is a summary of the law and the prophets. What does that mean? The law refers to the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's what they would have referred to as the, the law of Moses. The prophets, we know books of the prophets inside the Old Testament. Jesus is saying this sums up his scriptures. The Old Testament says you can take all of this and boil the Old Testament down to this point. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now, is that all that the Old Testament is saying? Is that all that Jesus is saying? No. He says more than that. Jesus goes on to say later that the law and the prophets are summarized in two commandments. To love God completely and to love your neighbor as yourself. In the first century, to treat other people the way that you would want to be treated, that would have been a drastic change in social behavior. You didn't do that. You didn't treat people the way that you wanted to be treated because people were in classes. If somebody was in a lower class than you are, you would treat them with less respect because they're lower than you. And it was socially acceptable, and honestly, it was socially... It, it was a produced social atmosphere or, or a behavior that you are to treat them like that. If you're in a higher class and you go around treating the poor very well, you're going to be looked down upon. You're not supposed to do that. So the idea of treating others the way that you want to be treated is counter to their culture. That's why it was a big deal to the disciples to hear this. Because they're saying, unlike the Pharisees, who treat people based on their class, I don't want you to pay attention to class at all. If you were the leper outside the city, I want you to treat that person the way that you would want to be treated, not the way that you want to be treated within your class. He's not saying to treat people the way that they treat you. He's not saying to treat people the way that you have been treated. No one wants to be treated like dirt. No one wants to be treated like animals. In your heart and your soul, you want to be treated, you want to be treated with respect. Our relationships should not be based on what we want, but rather should be based on the life instructions that God has given his children. We have instructions on the way that we are supposed to treat others. And yes, Jesus is using this example, treat others the way that you want to be treated. In that context, it means you're not paying attention to social status. He's also preached in other parts. If, if a guy walks into the banquet and, he, and he's dressed up in fine linens with great rings on, you don't give him the best seat in the house and you give the poor guy, you tell him to go sit on the floor back in the corner. 
See, Jesus is breaking down cultural barriers with everything he says. That's a big deal in what he's preaching right here. Jesus is saying, if you, as a follower of mine, I want you to treat others the way that you want to be treated. And you ask, well, if we're supposed to look at the life instructions that God gives us and live by those and the way we treat people, how do we know what the life instructions are? Well, they're in the Bible. They're in the book. Right? They're in there. It's going to require us to read it, right? I know every one of you here has it on your phone. You have probably numerous versions on your phone. I want you to have a written one, too. I've told you, if you don't have a written Bible, if you don't have one, there might be one out there on the table. Take it and just... It's not theft. It's a gift. It's yours. Take it home. Read it. Highlight it. That's fine. See, this passage was not delivered to non-believers. It was delivered to believers, telling them, I want you to keep this in mind. I want you to remember to treat people this way. And we say, well, we know people in our society who don't treat us well. Well, if they're non-believers, we can't really expect them to. Here's the thing. We can't hold the unsaved up to saved standards. Sometimes we would like to. We can't do that. Here's the thing. That means we have a job to do first, right? If we have somebody that's in that position, if they're not your one yet, they need to be. They might be your one. Why do some people treat us wrong? They may have heard this. They might have seen this verse on a bumper sticker somewhere. But does that mean they really know God? No. Maybe they're not obeying this rule because they're not believers. Because they don't have the basic life instructions that God has given us and they're unwilling to learn what those are. Our society has twisted this verse to say that you treat people how you want them to treat you, and you get to decide what that is. Some people are okay being treated bad. Some people have grown up in a, in a home of abuse, and they tolerate it, and they're okay with it. And so they say, I guess I can treat people like this because I'm okay being treated like that. See, that's... God has a higher standard for us. The results of a recent medical school study said that if you want to pass truth and values onto your children or young people, you must do two things to pass on truth and values. Number one, you must establish a loving, intimate relationship with the child. You want to pass on truth and values? You need to establish a loving, intimate relationship for, with the child. Number two, you must model that very truth in the presence of the child. So establish a loving relationship and model that presence or model that truth in their presence. Let them see you living that way. If you want to, if you want to teach them and pass on truth and values. If we, as children of God, if we are children of God, then He is our example. What can we learn by the way God presents values and truth to us? What can we learn from the way that He develops a very loving and deep devotional relationship with us? What can we learn about that? 
See, God knows to model his truth and love for us to see that. Why? So that we could learn how to teach others that same life. He models that for us. His love is there. It's just that some of his children are looking for their own predetermined good gifts. And they forget that our Father actually knows best. Do you know that God, he never treats you like dirt? He never treats you with disrespect. He always listens. He's always kind. He never stops loving you. He forgives you for anything. What if instead of living by this idea of do unto others as you would have them do unto you, what if we lived by the thought of doing unto others as God has done to us? What if we gave mercy like God? What if we forgave others the way that God has forgiven us? What if we listened the way that God listens? What if we cared about others the way that God cares about us? What if we went looking for that one lost lamb just the way that God kept looking for us? What if we loved like God? How does God treat us? He treats us with love. That is His example I want you to see what the Apostle Paul says to the church in Corinth. You've heard these words before. You've heard this verse before. But I want you to listen to these as God talking to you. As he speaks these words to you. And he instructs us to manage our relationships like this. Okay? This is God's love for you. 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7. God's love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others. God's love is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in the evil, in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always, watch this, protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. That's God's example of love for us, for us to see his example and develop that in others. It's for us to take his example of truth and love and grow in him. He's showing us what he wants us to do, how he wants us to interact with others. But before we can interact with others with the example of God's love, we have to interact with God in the example of God's love. Amen? There are people in our life who are not loving the way that God expects us to be loving It's easy to love people who we know. It's easy to love people who are kind to us. It's easy to love people who love us. That's easy. The Gospel writer Luke continues where Matthew leaves off. Luke continues in Luke chapter 6, following up on the words of Jesus in this part of the Sermon on the Mount. Luke records... 
In chapter 6, verse 32 through 36, I want you to hear this. This is what Jesus continues, and this is what he's saying. He says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that for you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those who from you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Wow. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. For God himself, Jesus says, is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Isn't that so against our culture? It says if somebody is ungrateful to you, if somebody is unkind to you, if somebody is evil to you, you have every right to do the same to them. And God says, no. That's not the way that I want you to treat them. I want you to treat them the way I treat you. I want you to see this. This is so important. The final point in your notes this morning. You and your example of God's love could be, it's going to be on the screen in a minute, I promise you. What's that? Oh, Isaiah. I don't know what. Thank you, Isaiah. You and your example of God's love could be God's answer to someone's prayer. You and your example of God's love could be the answer to someone's prayer. See, when we look at God's job, big picture, like what he does, it would be easy to realize It would be fair to say, it would be easy to realize that there are so many prayers going up to God at the same time. It's not just our prayers, right? There's so many prayers at the same time, and some of these prayers God's going to say yes to, some he's going to say no to, some he's going to say not right now. And it's not simply your prayers, it's everyone else's prayers. And so that leads to the question of how does God answer prayers? And that leads to the understanding of how God works. And we've talked about this before on Sunday mornings as well. No less than 15 times in the New Testament do we see that God works through his people. He works through believers. He works through his children. Do you know what that means? That means that God works through you. That means that he works through us. He doesn't simply work through you for the people inside your circle, for the people that you're comfortable with, the people that you work with, the people at your house, the people in your small group, the people here at church that you know. He works through you to reach everyone, to even reach sinners, to even reach non-believers. You know who he's talking about when he tells the disciples When he tells the disciples that, he's saying that even people like you, you and me in this church this morning, even us, even us could love the people who love us. That's easy. That's not hard. What makes you different is that you, as Christians, 
are held to a higher standard. We're held to a standard that gives people mercy. Just because God gave mercy to us, we give mercy to others. We're held to a higher standard that says, even people that are hard to love, who are hard to love, it is our job to love them. Would it be fair to say that we've probably been hard for God to love sometimes? We've probably been hard for our parents to love sometimes. But if we understand that God might be using you to answer somebody else's prayer, and if that's the case, that we, we can't tell God, no, we're not going to love who we don't want to love. We're not going to reach out for those we don't want to reach out for. Because God wants to use us. He wants to use us as the answer to somebody else's prayer. He works through his people. What if we just curled up in a bowl and we didn't allow God to use us? I'll tell you that God would, God would answer this prayer some other way. But it would be fair to, re- to say that God would recognize then that we're not really reliable. I'll tell you that I want to be a very reliable resource to answer the prayers of others that God has put in my life. I want you guys, I want everyone here to also be a very reliable resource to be an answer to the prayers of other people. I want God to know that when he calls on me, I will be there to be an answer to somebody else's prayer. I will be there to answer where he wants me to go. I will be there according to his will. We all want to be reliable to God. And see, the twisting of this scripture comes full circle because somebody else who you know in your world at home, at work, in your life, somebody who you know right now is realizing point number one in their notes that prayers that have never been prayed will never be answered. See, if they're not praying those prayers, the request isn't getting to God. He's not answering it. And He's not using you to go and answer those prayers. He's not using you to help our brother and sister or to help somebody who who desperately needs to hear the message of the gospel. This morning, I want you to remember, and I want us to remember, that we can't grow in our relationship with our Savior if we're not spending time with Him, in communication with Him. We can't expect an answer to prayers that we don't pray. What expectations are you putting on God this morning? Are we using His example of the way he treats us as the rule, as the way we should be treating others? Are we falling into a selfishness with God's love and we're keeping it for ourselves instead of giving it to others? There's so many who read these verses and think that simply coming to Christ is going to bring them whatever they ask for. And if you've been a follower of Christ for a while, you know that that's simply not the case. Life doesn't get easier. But we're reminded constantly that there is a Creator who created us in His image who loves us deeply and has great gifts for us. So when your prayers 
are closely aligned with God's will, that, that you recognize that this relationship's getting stronger, but how do you know when that has happened? It's when your prayers and your requests, your prayers and your requests become something that you and God are constantly in agreement on. You know, when, when God's not saying no as much anymore, and you're praying for things because you know He's saying yes, because you know, you know that that's where His will is. Comes with time, right? Comes with time, comes with communication, comes with knowing who you're talking to, knowing God's cares, knowing who He is. It's because we have that understanding of His will. How do we know God's will for us? We pray. We ask, we seek, we knock, all the time knowing that He is in control.